A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. My guest on today's show had almost as much trouble coming out as a comedian as she did coming out as a lesbian. So I live in New York with my girlfriend. That's right, lesbian. <laughs> I oh, know that went well when I came out to my African mother. My mother's Nigerian, super ambitious for her kids. You know, I was meant to be the doctor. I became an engineer. She was like, okay, that's good, that works. Because there's only a few jobs you can have in your family. In an African family, there's only a few choices of job. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, disgrace the family. Those are the... <laughs> so I became an engineer. She's like, okay, engineer, that's good. It's on the list, okay. And then I decided to leave engineering to become a comedian. I knew that wasn't going to go well. So I thought, well, I might as well come out to her and go for the double whammy. Uh, <laughs> that did not go well. She's like, what? Why are you telling me? You are telling me that my daughter is a gay clown. Oh, God. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Gina Yashere sharing just a taste of her fascinating life story on stage. There is so much more where that came from in her new memoir, Cack Handed, which is available starting today. Born and raised in London with Nigerian parents, Gina's long road to comedy success in the United States was not an easy one. But since coming to America to compete on Last Comic Standing 14 years ago, she has broken a ton of barriers. She was the first Brit to perform on Deaf Comedy Jam. She was the senior British correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and the co-creator with Chuck Lorre of her very own CBS sitcom, Bob Hart's Abishola, which was recently renewed for a third season. We get into all of it on today's show, so don't go anywhere. This is me with Gina Yashere. Well, welcome. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, and I just got to to read your book, which I really, really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. So I actually want to start with the title because I, I would love for you to explain what the what the title of this book uh, means to to the listeners. Well, the title uh, "Cack Handed." So "Cack Handed" means left-handed or awkward and clumsy, mm-hmm. um, which. I am all of these things. I'm left-handed. I'm also well. I would say I'm not, I would say that I'm not awkward or clumsy. I'm saying that left-handed <laughs> people are perceived as awkward yes, and clumsy yes. because we're doing everything the opposite way to everybody else. So if I'm in a bar and some and a right-handed person puts their drink on their right-hand side and I'm gesticulating or whatever and I move my left hand to get my drink, I'm going to knock over their drink and then I'm the awkward clumsy one. But that's only because the whole world is what ninety percent right-handed or something. So the the world is made for right-handed people, so we are perceived as awkward and clumsy. So it, it's kind of an explanation of it. that's what that means, and also the fact that my career has has taken a weird route to get to where I'm going, uh, where I am now. Whereas I started off as an engineer, then you know worked for doing t- work to the telephone exchange, wiring telephone lines, then I built elevators, <laughs> and then from elevators into comedy. So my career has taken weird turns. So that's what cat candidate and cat. The word cat 
in England is another word for shit or poo. And in a lot of cultures, uh, especially African and, and uh, Asian culture and Middle Eastern culture, the left hand is the hand that's supposed to be the one that's to use is unclean and is used to wipe your ass. Yes, Hence, yes, I know about that too. Hand. I'm I'm also left-handed, so I uh, oh, I know about all this stuff, and I know you know choosing where you sit at the at the uh, dining table is very important. A lot of things that we think about that nobody else thinks about. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I call the book Cat Handy because I thought, well, it's everything that I am, and it's also it encompasses everything to do with my life and career and how how things have gone. So you mentioned your, you know, your history of being an engineer and, and working mm-hmm. in the elevator company and all that. So how did you, you know, make that transition from from doing that kind of work to to becoming a comedian? And was that a hard transition to make? Uh, well, uh, my last job, I was working for Otis uh, repairing elevators. So you've read my book, so you know what I went through working at Otis. I was surrounded by very, very racist, horrible white men who you know i'd come into work and there was banana skin stuck in my jacket and and pictures of monkeys on the wall and so like but i stuck it out for four years because i loved engineering and i loved the job per se i loved the job i didn't love the people but i loved the job so i stuck that out for four years but then i was the first female engineer that they'd ever had in otis's history 100 year history in the uk First female engineer. So they didn't know what to do with me. I looked good on all their brochures. It looked really good for them uh, PR-wise, but they didn't know what to do with me. And, and they, you Do know, you feel so like I, that's part of why you were there, that they were kind of using you as a, uh, as a prop maybe, in that way? Well, I went in there. I was fully qualified when I went in there. I came in higher qualified than most of the guys I was working with, hence the resentment. So I, I could do the job. I was good. I was good at the job. And, but obviously they got a double whammy. They got an engineer who was skilled and qualified, but also happened to be black and female, <laughs> which helped them no end PR wise. But they didn't know what to do with me. When, when I was supposed to get the promotions that would have me running my own site, you know, I'd passed certain levels and I'd, I'd done everything I was supposed to do to get that promotion. And they were like, yeah, uh, uh, I don't think the guys will listen to a woman. I don't know. I don't think we could. And then they just kept pairing me up with people who were either similarly qualified or less qualified. And you're not supposed to be paired up. Once you're qualified to do the job on your own, you go off and manage your own site. You do your own thing. And they wouldn't let me do it. So after four years, I butted my head against a brick wall. I was like, you know what? I'm out. Fuck this. And, uh, and they were making people redundant. The building industry used to go through, you know, peaks and troughs. And in the mid-90s, it was going through a trough. They were laying off a lot of uh, staff. And they were never going to lay me off. But I walked into my manager's <laughs> office and I was like, lay me off. Yeah, I went please. Out. Yeah, or, or or I'll go public with the sexual and racial discrimination. Choice is yours. And so they were like, okay. And so they laid me off and put, gave me a nice pay packet. And that's it. Was and that happened sort of in the summer of '95. So I was like, well, I'm gonna, you know, I've got this nice pay packet. I've got I've got an apartment that I'm paying really cheap, cheap rent on. My car is paid off. I can afford to have a little bit of fun through the summer and not work for five or six months. So, and it was in that time that I kind of fell into comedy. People had always told me I was funny as a kid. And, and at school, I remember a drama teacher saying, you should do, you know, something to do with performance. And my mum at the time was like, performance, acting? No, no. She can act like a doctor when she becomes a doctor. <laughs> yeah. She's going to become a doctor. So I thought, well, I've got all this free time. Let me try all these things that people have always told me I was good at. And that's kind of how I ended up falling into comedy. And within a few months of starting doing stand-up, I got my first TV gig. 
um, I got it through to the final of a really huge competition on television. So then I was like, oh, shit, I'm good at this. I'm going to be a star. <laughs> I'm going to be famous. And then I just carried on doing it and threw myself at it and just ended up never going back into engineering. What do you remember about the, the first time that you actually got on stage to, to tell jokes? Uh, I was really supremely comfortable, weirdly enough. Yeah, that's not, that's not usually what you hear. People usually yeah, were pretty I, I nervous. Yeah, I was I was extremely nervous. I was extremely nervous and excited. But it was more of a nervous excitement than oh my god, terrified. Um, because I would I'd always been funny and people always laughed at me, and like everybody I'd always met, I'd always been able to make people laugh. So I was confident in my ability to make people laugh. I, and and yeah, I was I was cocky to, to be honest. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's be honest. I was cocky. <laughs> I mean, if that gig had, if that first show had gone badly, I might not be here today. <laughs> yeah, you think. I might not be here today, but because the first shows went so brilliantly, I was like, oh, oh, I meant to do this. This is what I meant to be doing. And then I threw everything I had it. Did if it continue I'm, to go well? Oh, God, I had some terrible gigs. I had some terrible gigs. I got booed off. I got stared at. Uh, yeah, I, I've had terrible gigs. There is no comedian who's worth, worth their salt who has not had terrible gigs along the way. Yeah, that's, but, it seems to be what I hear from almost everyone that I talk to is their first gig is great goes way better than expected and then you know maybe the next 50 are not so not so great it, it takes yeah, a while I mean, to, to get I back i had a very very high batting average like i killed a lot of shows in the beginning of my career but i did have some very horrible ones as well but my batting average was high so the horrible ones i was like okay that didn't go well and i and i used to keep meticulous notes of every show i did I'd write every joke in every order, and then I'd grade every performance um, out of 10. And if I had a horrible show, I'd draw a picture of a coffin in my notebook, <laughs> you know, to, to denote my death. So I was very meticulous. I had an engineering mindset, so I wrote every... I was very meticulous about the way I went about my comedy. So I'd, pretty, so I, I'd mark every joke that went really well and then embellish those. And then the ones that didn't go well, they'll, they'd fall off the end of the conveyor belt. Yeah, I'm always really interested with comedians who then write memoirs because you've been writing about yourself for years. Exactly. And then you have to then go write this book that is a different medium, um, but maybe has some similarities. So how did you think about that in terms of what you would put in the, were there things that you wrote in the book, wrote about in the book that you wouldn't talk about on stage or, you know, vice versa? Yeah, there's quite a few things in the book that I've never talked about. Like I had a very horrible and abusive stepfather and I'd never done jokes about it because I just, I just never did. Just doesn't then, seem funny to you or you, uh... it just, I, you know, I, I can try and make everything funny, but I just never even considered doing jokes about him because he was so awful. So that stuff about him in the book, I've never done material about it. Um, there was an attempted uh, attempted suicide when I was 16 that I've never made jokes about. But, but then when I was writing the chapter, even though it was serious, it was actually pretty funny. And I was like, oh, I'm going to turn that into stand-up. Because, you know, I forgot about it. It was when I was 16. It was just, it wasn't even, I wouldn't even say it was a cry for help. It was a revenge suicide. I'd had a massive fight with my mum. And I was like, I'll fucking show you. And I took a bunch of aspirins. Which didn't didn't do it. Did nothing. 
<laughs> you know, I was, you know, when you watch suicides in movies, you take pills, you're, you're unconscious, and then you die peacefully. And I was lying there, and I was like, when am I, when am I going to be unconscious? When, when is this going to happen? And it never happened. But then I was committed now, so then I pretended to be unconscious. And then they called an ambulance, and I, for, for the whole time, the, 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 <laughs> the paramedics knew I wasn't un- unconscious because they were like, what did she take? Aspirin. Oh, well, then she's not unconscious, but I, I was committed. Yeah, you were acting. I was acting. Yeah, that was one of my best acting roles. So that, when I'm writing about it, what led up to it was not funny. What led up to the suicide attempt was not funny. But the whole suicide attempt, when I'm reading that, I'm going, this is pretty funny. I could, this could be stand-up. If you can make that funny, you can make anything funny, right? Yeah, yeah. So at some point, when this book comes out, I think I'm going to turn some of that into stand-up. Because now, as I'm writing it, I was finding the humor in it all. Are you uh, are you hoping to be able to tour and and perform again? Uh, you know, in the next few months or? Well, I hope so, but it's you know it's we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm also doing a TV show that has taken over my entire life, so I don't get as much time to tour anyway. Like when I don't, you know, I used to be on a plane three weeks in every month going somewhere, and I haven't been on a plane for a year and. A- over a year I'm like this is the longest in 25 years that I've not been on a plane so it's crazy but yeah the TV show has taken up a lot of my life so you know I usually I was hoping you know I was planning to tour during the hiatus when we finished in between season one and season two we would have had a three month hiatus and then I was looking to hit the clubs and just in, see how the TV show has impacted on my audience whereby I get an increased attendance at my, at my shows I was looking forward to testing that but COVID <laughs> put pay to that so uh, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, I don't know when I'm going to tour next. I feel like the universe is telling me that you've given it a good 26 years, Gina. Um, <laughs> time <laughs> maybe for... it's time to move in a different yeah. direction. You're... Well, that's why a book is good. <laughs> yeah, you've got you don't a book. have to travel. You're... You don't have to go anywhere for that. Exactly. You've got a book. You're an executive producer on the show. You're acting on the show. You're writing the show. You know, maybe uh, it's time to go in a different direction. So I, I'm just going with the flow of the universe. Well, before we get to uh, to Bob Hart's Abishola, which I want to talk about, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the the earlier um, part of your career and sort of your beginnings of, of your career in America. Um, I know you came to the United States for the first time uh, to be part of Last Comic Standing, right? I'd been coming to America before that on vacations and then just going to comedy clubs and just going, um, I'm from England, could I get on stage? And I've been doing that for quite a bit. So I'd already performed at, um, a lot, was it a laugh factory or an improv in Fort? Miami, so I think it was the improv in Miami. So it was an improv in Miami. I'd already performed there because I just turned up at the club and they were doing a kind of open mic night or something. And I was like, I can do. And I so I'd been doing that for a while before tech because I'd been wanting to live in America since I was a kid. So when I was working as an engineer, I was working for an American company with a with a view to transferring. And I've, my thought process was no different when I started doing comedy. When I started in comedy, I was like, great. I can do comedy in America. So I was always going to be, coming to America on vacation and just turning up at comedy clubs and seeing if I can get on. And but I came over here seriously for Last Comic Standing. I mean, Last Comic Standing was a godsend because I got through to the final and they got me a two-year work visa. So I was like, what does this mean? Does this mean I can live and work in America for two years and they won't kick me out? And and NBC paid for all of that. Got a lawyer, did it, did it all for me. And, I, and they were like, yes. So I was like, wonderful. So when I went back to... Because obviously between the semi-final and the final, there was a few weeks. In that few weeks, I went back, sold my house, (laughs) 
threw a huge party, <laughs> a, a, a goodbye and fuck you England party. And people were like, you're crazy. It's only a two-year visa. What are you going to do? You're going to have to come back. And I was like, I'm not coming back. I will make this work out. Trust me. And then I, I literally just gave away and sold everything I owned and turned up in America for the final last comic standing with two suitcases to my name. Thinking, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to win this competition. I'll get 250000 I can buy a house with that. And then I'll become a huge star. And obviously I came back for last comic, got through the final, but then got knocked out in the first week. And I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that plan didn't work. <laughs> I guess you, you didn't have a lot of time on that show, but what was the experience like? Because I've talked to a few other comedians. Um, one was Eliza Schlesinger, who, who was saying it was a pretty rough atmosphere on that show, especially for, for women. Did you, did uh, you have that experience? Because she was horrible. (laughs) She was not a nice person to the other comics. That's why it was rough for her. She was very arrogant and not nice. She was on. She wasn't on your season, right? She was on my season, but she was. But you on, heard that from other people. Or? She was on with friends of mine from England. Uh, who, yeah, that's why it was rougher. <laughs> they hated her because she was awful. Uh, I didn't find it rough as a woman at all. Um, I maybe found it maybe I got some false information there. Definitely false. Uh, okay. I didn't find it Good rough to know. because 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 there was women exec producers. Paige Hurwitz uh, was an exec producer on the show, and she made sure. And she's a she's a stand up comic as well as being a producer. So she made sure that women were treated well and it was not a horrible atmosphere. So I don't really, uh, for that particular show, I don't think, I mean, the last few seasons when they had those awful male judges, who was that guy who was saying, tell that that would, you know, I watched the later seasons and who was that judge? He was a comedian. He used to be on Saturday Night Live or something. And he was saying terrible things to women. And yeah, I was like, you fucking asshole. But uh, what the season that I was on, it was fine. I had, you know, I, it was horrible for me as a reality show. I, I had never watched the show. So I didn't know about the politics of how you vote. I was voting people based on what, you know, who I thought wasn't, you know, but it was already politics. And I didn't realize I didn't play the game correctly. And that's why I ended up getting, getting out first. I made an error of, of, of not playing to the strengths of a reality show. I played it like it was a real competition and we were really voting for the weakest comedian. It's, that's and not they, what it's about. That's not what it's about at all. It was all about voting for self-preservation. And I didn't do that. And that's why I ended up getting out first. <laughs> I did see you were you were on the same season as Amy Schumer before she I became was. super famous. What were your uh, what were your first impressions of, of her uh, at that time? I knew time? she was going to be super famous. She was extremely ambitious even at 24 or 25 or however she was, old she was then. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, this is a girl who's going to go very far. <laughs> it was not too long after that, I believe, that you were the first British comedian to ever perform on Deaf Comedy Jam, which is a pretty huge I was, distinction. I was, yeah. Hey, Def Jam, Los Angeles, how are we doing? Yes, I know you're looking at me funny. I'm the first British comic on Deaf Comedy Jam. Clap it up, clap it up, yeah. You didn't even know there was black people in England, did you? Huh? There's black people in England. There's millions of us. We are everywhere, that's right. Wherever the white people go, we follow their asses. That's what happens. What, what did that mean to you, that experience? And what do you remember about that, uh, that night performing? Well, how I got on the show is quite funny. As I said, I would, I'd come, you know, I was, I was quite famous in England, but when I came to America, nobody knew who the hell I was. And after getting voted out first on Last Comic Standing, I never got a chance to stay on people's television. So I was still struggling to get work in America. So I just turned up, I was in LA and uh, I just turn up at clubs and just sit there and try and, you know, I turn up at the 
improvs and the laugh factories and go, can I go on? And they're like, uh, excuse me, who are you? And that was the attitude I got a lot. So I'd, <laughs> yeah. I'd just go and sit in the clubs and just wait. And then when I'd hear managers going, oh, so-and-so comedian, he, he or she's running late. I'd go, well, if you need someone to go up and do five minutes. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. So that's how I got a lot of, got on stage a lot in LA the first couple of years. I'd just sit there and just hope that someone didn't turn up. And uh, the night of how I got on Le- the Deaf Comedy Jam, I was at the comedy store in the belly room. It was um, Crack 'em Up Thursdays, uh, comedy night, which is like an urban comedy night in the belly room on a, on a, on a Thursday evening. Really fun show it was, uh, run by Nichelle Nerdock, really lovely lady. Anyway, the hell, the, all, what I didn't know was I was there just hanging out. What I didn't know was uh, they were all, it was an audition night. All the comedians on that night were auditioning for Deaf Comedy Jam. And they had all the Deaf Comedy Jam execs and whatever at the back of the room watching. I didn't know who anybody was. I, it's new to the country. I didn't care. I've been in the country six months at this point. And um, Damon Wayans Jr., so Damon Wayans' son, went on stage and absolutely wrecked the room, just destroyed. And no other comedian wanted to follow him. They, <laughs> they, they didn't want to look bad following that. So none of them wanted to go up. And I was like, I'll go up. Yeah. Wow. Do you need yeah. someone to go up? I'll, I'll go up. Yeah. And so they were, so the show was like, all right. And up I went. And, you know, I, at this point, they, they, people in America didn't know who I was, but I'd been doing comedy at that point for 10 years. So I had that 10 years of a good experience. So I went on stage and rode his wave and killed myself and then came off. And uh, somebody came up to me. I didn't know who it was. And they were like, oh, you're really gay. Great. You're really funny. I was like, great, thanks. And do you book this do you book this night? Do you book a comedy club? Can I get... And they were like, no, we don't book the night. I was like, all right, then. Okay, well, thanks for that. Off. <laughs> Here's my number. And I went, not knowing that it was an executive. <laughs> From Deaf Comedy. Deaf Comedy Jam. And then I get a call sort of a day or two later saying, this is blah, blah, blah from Deaf Comedy Jam. Or we'd like to book you for the show. And I was like, oh, well, that, that's great. How much are you paying me? Because <laughs> at that time I was living in LA, <laughs> making no money. So I was like, good. Oh, that's good. How much? And I, you know, the, the, obviously I knew the show, you know, we didn't really get it in England, but we'd get the VHS sets in England. So we watched a lot of the Bernie Macs and, and that. And so we knew, I knew the show and I knew, you know, I knew how important it was, you know, what it done for black comedians. But for me, it was just another TV gig and a payday. And I was like, <laughs> well, this is great because it will help get more people to see me in America. But for me, it was just another gig. And on the day I recorded it, you know, I had a strong set. I'd been in uh, LA six months at that point. So I'd written great material about being an outsider looking in on American culture. So I was nervous, but nervous, excited more than nervous. I knew I was going to kill because I'd been doing that set and I also ran it consistently before we did the the taping so the day was really fun I really enjoyed it I got to you know there was lots of people in the audience that I'd seen in the movies and stuff and you know so that was really uh it was a fun day I really enjoyed it you have a lot of jokes in your act about uh American racism versus British racism my mom had the pick of the globe she could have gone anywhere in the world imagine my mom in Nigeria with all her maps spread out before her hmm. Where shall I go? Where shall I go? <laughs> you know what? I am fed up with the sunshine. <laughs> I want to go somewhere with a lot of drizzle <laughs> and subtle racism. That's what I want, subtle. Because <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Americans, but the Brits are the best at racism. They're the best. 
They're better than you Americans. They're so good, you don't even know you're being discriminated against. They are fucking ninja racists. Which I thought was funny, especially because that's something that's been in the news recently with uh, everything with Meghan Markle. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that and jokes about that. Um, so you were kind of there before her. But uh, how did that, um, you know, become something that you that you really wanted to talk about in your um, in your act? Because when I came over here for a start, uh, when I first came over here, this is before the influx of black British actors taking over Hollywood and just killing it. I was here and I'd go on stage and I'd open my mouth and people were like, huh? They had no idea where I was from. They didn't realize that there were black people in England. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I'd have to go on stage and go, no, I'm not an Australian Aborigine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm British and I'm black. There are black people in England. There are many of us. Like London is just a, is, it looks just like New York. You know what I mean? So I still have to explain that. And I, I had to explain that because a lot of the movies that have come out of England, you wouldn't think there were black people in England because like the movie Notting Hill, you know, that watching that movie, you would not be blamed for not realizing that Notting Hill was a black area in the 60s. Like Notting Hill was like Harlem was in the 60s. You definitely would not know that from watching the movie Notting Hill. It was a black area and then it got super gentrified and black people got driven out. So I could understand why Americans are confused. And then they with the whole English, the gentility and that whole belief that the British are so polite and want, you know, because the way we speak, they're so wonderful and polite and their English is so good. They, they're such lovely people. And so they don't realize that racism is just, I mean, the Brits were the biggest slavers. <laughs> you know, you forget the British Empire ruled the planet at one point and they ruled the planet by subjugating millions of people all over the globe. So I had to, you know, it wasn't a thing I made a point of going, I'm going to get up on stage and talk about racism. But in just explaining who I was, that had to be included in in the conversation. Yeah, the joke with with Meghan Markle that I heard was, you know, that she kind of had to, she had, the racism was so bad in Britain that she had to escape, you know, back to America to uh, to our to our racism. Yeah, um, but, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> at least at least American racism is in your face. You know, you know where it stands. You know where you stand. Your hood wearing KKK, your skinheads, your your fucking your police officers. You know where. I mean, our police officers in England are just as racist, just as racist. The difference is our police officers aren't allowed to carry guns. Hence, black it's people big, don't die yeah, in the big same difference. numbers. Big difference. We don't die in the same numbers. Uh, as we do as as we do in America, only because ours don't carry guns. Um, the other thing, just in the in the world of the Meghan Markle and the Royals stuff that you've you know talked about before on the Daily Show and and that kind of thing, um, did you ever have any run-ins with Piers Morgan in in London in England as someone who is in the TV world in that country? No, I never. I, I had run-ins with him on Twitter over Meghan uh, <laughs> yeah. when he first started tweeting about Meghan, and uh, I had a massive thing with him on Twitter, and he responded, "Again, I'm not racist. I don't know what you're talking about, Gina." But I, I never actually met. I've never met him in the flesh that's probably for the best uh very much for the best that pug face <laughs> twat <laughs> coming up gina talks about her short stint as the british correspondent on the daily show she also shares the insane story about how she almost said no to chuck lorry and is really glad she didn't Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. There are so many other conversations you should check out, including great talks with other former Daily Show contributors like Larry Wilmore, Louis Black, and Samantha Bee. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Gina Yashere. So speaking of uh, The Daily Show, um, that was, you know, I think another time more recently that a lot of people saw you, maybe who hadn't um, been familiar with you. You were the British correspondent on that show. You know, like after this, I, I bet you wish that Trump had never come at all. <laughs> Are you kidding? On the contrary, I wish he'd pop by more often. <laughs> but, but, but Gina, you just said that everyone in Britain hated it. Exactly. Everyone. The United Kingdom has never been so united. (laughs) Brexit tore us apart, but Donald Trump brought us back together. (laughs) I mean, before him, nobody cared about the royals. We were like, they don't work. They do nothing. Our taxes pay for them to live on posh welfare. Their downtown Abbey meets shameless. But Trump walks in front of our queen, and I was like, but this is the mother of our nation, damn it! <laughs> She's the jewel in our crown. Put this man in stocks and slap his balls with a wet crumpet. How did that happen, and, and what was that experience like for you? So I'd uh, tried to get on, show, on shows on Comedy Central in the past, and I'd always been turned down. People going, oh, you, she doesn't quite fit our demographic. Basically, uh, I haven't got a face that 16 to 30-year-olds could masturbate over. So <laughs> I, there was no way I was ever getting on Comedy Central, and I'd given up apply, trying to get anything. Like I, I tried to get stand-up specials on Comedy Central. I tried to, you know, pitch stuff to Comedy They were not interested any, in anything I had to offer because I just did not fit their demographic. So uh, Daily Show, I, you know, I'd, met, I'd known Trevor now before, way before The Daily Show. Um, the first time I'd met him in person was uh, I was doing a show for Fluffy, Gabriel Iglesias. He had a show called The Stand-Up Revolution, and he'd seen me perform on stage with Cat Williams somewhere, and he wanted me for his show. So I performed on his show, and this young guy got on stage from South Africa and ripped the, the show to shreds. And I was like, <laughs> who the fuck is this dude? I never yeah. <laughs> And I'd performed in South Africa many years before, but... I'd met, I'd performed in South Africa before Trevor had started doing comedy. So I 
didn't know him. I'd never heard of him. And I, I, I remember going out to him after the show and going, oh, that was really funny, dude. What a great show. Uh, and then I went home and Googled him and I was like, holy shit, this dude is a star in Africa. He's a star. And then from then on, I kept bumping into Trevor all over the world. So I'd go and do, I used to go to Australia every year to do the festivals. I'd do my little 200 seater festival and, uh, and I'd been doing Australia for years at that point. I'd started off just doing other people's shows and then built up to having my own little run at a theatre. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing quite well here. You know, the 200 seater theatre. I'm selling out. I'm doing really well. And then found out that was a, there's a 2,000 seater theatre around the corner sold out for four nights by this young South African upstart. So I was like, what the? And then I went, I remember going to he, the show and he was great. And then I'd never seen so many black people in Australia in my life. Like I've been going to Australia for years and I'd see maybe two, I'd be there for three months and maybe see three black people in three months. But the Africans from all surrounding areas had traveled to <laughs> Sydney, Australia to see Trevor. So 3,000 seat of theater, there would be, there was like that maybe 2,000 white people and, a, and you know, and, and a thousand black people. And I was like, I've never seen this many black. So, uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> standing outside uh, calling my agent in Australia at the time again, get my flyers and bring them down to this theatre right now. And then I stood outside Trevor's show handing out flyers. That was going, a good idea. Uh, come to my show. If you like, if you like him, you'll love me. And so I'd, I'd bump in, I kept bumping, I bumped into him in, in, in Singapore doing shows where I'd be doing my little theatre shows and he'd be selling out some arena down the street <laughs> so I kept but and then we'd hang I'd see him backstage at the shows and I'd go and say hi or whatever and I kept bumping into him and I remember meeting him at the comedy cellar in New York when he first moved to the states and he he was you know he moved to New York and he was like I'm gonna do some stuff while I'm here and I remember us chatting about you know because both of us are kind of outsiders looking in on American culture so I remember we kind of bonded on that and then we, we performed together at the comedy cellar so I'd see him all the time and I just one day out of the blue i just got a text hey gina you know how, how you doing i was like hey how you doing who's this and it's like oh this is trevor and i'm like trevor who I, I, i'm from england i know 76 yeah. trevors and uh, he was like trevor no i was like oh hey trevor how's, how's it going and he's like you know um what are you up to i'd love you to come and do some work on my show and i was like oh, what on the daily show and, and, and that's basically happened. He, that's how it happened. He just asked me to come and do some correspondent pieces on the show. Comedy Central would never ask me. If it had been up to Comedy Central, I would never have been on <laughs> the daily you. show. He asked you. It was Trevor going, I want you to come and do, do, do a couple of things. And then I came and, and did the thing and, and did really well at it. And then, you know, I did, did a few more appearances. I was, I was not on it for very long, you know, because I was on the show once every few months. And then, you know, so I maybe did three or four appearances on the show before I then got this show. Yeah. So that's why you but, stopped or? That's or do you think you would have had a more regular role there if you uh, I don't things think had gone differently? I don't think I'd have had a more regular role. I think I still did not fit the Comedy Central demographic, if I'm going to be honest with you. You know, they could have used me a lot more than they did. You know, so I was yeah, on Yeah, you've really only been on a few times, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was grateful for the opportunity and I was I'm always grateful to Trevor for giving me that opportunity. But like, you know, I wasn't like a correspondent like Roy Wood Jr. was or, you know, or Ron. Chang, I wasn't, I wasn't one of those. I was just like a, a, you know, I was a part-time, I'd come in and do a thing and then you wouldn't see me again for three months. Even though I was constantly pitching stuff, I was constantly pitching stuff going, what about this? Can we do this? Can we do that? And a lot of it got knocked back. So I was, I, I'd kind of, by the end of it, I'd kind of given up, you know? So, but you know, Bob Hart's Abishola came along at the right time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of leads up to that show, um, which is it's such an interesting, you know, pairing you and Chuck Lorre, I would say. And I I know you, you've talked a little bit about how you had some hesitancy uh, working oh, with yeah. him at the beginning. Oh, very much so. I mean, I got a call out, out of nowhere. My agent calls me and goes, and I was living in New York at the time, bearing in mind, I've been living in New York. I left LA at this point. I was in LA as does Warner Brothers, because I know how much Warner Brothers were. I want a first class ticket. So they flew me to LA for this meeting. So I walk into a room and I'm in the room with Chuck Lorre, uh, Eddie Gordetsky, Al Higgins, who are two of his most trusted exec producers and writers. And I walk into the room and, you know, they're like, so, you know, um, tell us about yourself. So I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, you guys flew me here. I'm assuming <laughs> that you would have known, but fine, fair enough. So I go on the charm offensive, tell them about myself. And then Chuck says, uh, so I assume you probably want to know why we brought you here. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, for fuck's sake, yes. <laughs> and he goes, well, I really love Billy Gardell. And in my head, I'm like, who the fuck is Billy Gardell? Like, <laughs> I don't know who anybody is. I'm so busy hustling and trying to do shows. I didn't really watch television. So I was like, in my head, I'm like, who the fuck? I don't, who are you I don't know who this person is. And I saw his eyes kind of shift behind me. And I looked behind me and there's a massive poster of Michael <laughs> Molly on the wall. Yeah. And I go, oh yeah, yeah, that Billy Gardell. Oh, of course. No idea. And he goes, well, you know, Michael Molly finished a while back and I really love Billy Gardell and I want to make another show. Uh, around him and I was like cool and in my head I'm like what what the fuck what has this got to do with me and he goes well you know I don't want to just do another show with him with another white girl we don't want to just do another Melissa uh hookup um, I'm thinking that maybe we we do a story and he's his love interest is of African descent Nigerian perhaps and I was like okay <laughs> so you want me to play the Nigerian? And Chuck goes, mm, not necessarily. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, what the fuck yeah. am I doing here? Why am I here? But obviously that's in my head. That's all in my head, not in the room. In the room, I'm like, okay, interesting. Oh, okay, so yeah. what would you like my role to be? So they're, they're like, well, look, we're three white guys. We can't write a show with a, with a, you know, we need someone to help us do this we so we, we we're interested in bringing you in as a consultant and in my head i'm like a consultant what so you want me to be your african consult what the fuck what the fuck is this shit in my head i'm like <laughs> what is this shit you've flown me across the country so that i can be your expert on all things african are you fucking kidding me right now so that was my thought process but in the room i was like oh okay interesting interesting tell me more and they're like well that's basically what we want to do we we, we want to create a show around it we, we want to have a nigerian female protagonist you know we'd like you to consult on on the show you know because we don't know anything about nigeria or nigerian culture and i was like well so so i was like okay well that that, that sounds interesting so i said how did you find me and i'm thinking they're gonna go oh Daily Show, your numerous appearances on The Tonight Show, Jay Leno, your Def Comedy Jam, your three next Netflix specials. They were, uh, I think it was Eddie who said it. Oh, we typed Nigerian female into oh, Google and, and, and you were the one of the, you're no the best way. one that came up. A hundred percent. And I was like, I was like, are you serious? And I, in my head, I'm like, this is the epitome of white privilege right here that you could afford to fly me first class from New York to Los Angeles. And you have no idea of anything that I've done. No idea. You've just, off a Google search, you found a clip of my comedy and went, oh, she looks fun. Let's get her over <laughs> it. 
And that's basically what happened. So we had a conversation and I was like, okay, well, you know, and I'd flown over to meet for the meeting on Sunday night from New York. I'd landed on Sunday night and the meeting was on Monday. And my plan was to fly back to New York on Tuesday after the meeting. So they were like, you know, we'd love you to stay a couple of days and a few days and just, you know, consult with us and just talk us through the, you know, the process of these characters or whatever. And I was like, okay, I'll have a talk with my agent. And I I leave the meeting and I call my agent and I go, no fucking way. (laughs) No way. I'm not interested in this. Please tell them thank you, but no thank you. It's wonderful, but I'm going to go back to my life as a stand-up comic. Uh, I don't want to be involved in this exploitative, I don't know what the hell they're trying to do, but it feels exploitative to me. I'm not into it. I'm not into it at all. Tell him thank you, but no thank you. Uh, my agent is like, I'll, I'll let you think about it for a little bit <laughs> before we go and say no to Chuck Lorre. Um, in the meantime, I must have subconsciously known that I was fucking up because my younger brother, uh, Edwin, who is my younger brother, but he's also the smartest and wisest in the family. Uh, I called him and told him that I was going to say no to this thing. And then my best friend, Lila, who's also way wiser and smarter than me, uh, I also called her and told her, And I basically had them both screaming at me in stereo (laughs) from England, basically going, are you an idiot? Are you a fan? Are you an idiot? And my brother is a big, um, big bang fan and two and a half men fan. So he's like, this is, you've been complaining about the lack of opportunities Mm -hmm. for black women and someone with your talent. And now you've got something falling on your lap and you're about to turn this down like an idiot. No, you're not going to do it. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to take this opportunity. You're going to see what happens. And I was like, okay maybe you guys are right <laughs> maybe you guys are right so then i call my agent i go i go all right i'll stay for a couple of days i'll, I'll consult whatever that means and we'll go from there so once i got in the room with chuck and eddie now i could tell that they were genuine you know they they weren't trying to exploit me they was really trying to make a good show they were trying to make a good show so i couldn't help myself my comedy juices started flowing I started giving them characters and character names and giving them the background of what the character would be like and what the culture is and then throwing a few jokes from my stand-up so they get a feel of what kind of material that they could produce this sitcom around. And, um, you know, I, I was vibing with him and I really liked Chuck, you know. I think because I didn't know who he was, I didn't have that fear. Right, you weren't intimidated. I wasn't intimidated by him. I was like, look, this, if this works out, great. If it doesn't, I'm a very successful stand-up comic. I'll go back to doing what I'm doing. So, yeah, I can take this or leave this. So so I was very relaxed about the whole thing. I was quite relaxed. I was vibing and pitching jokes and just, you know, creating a storyline for me and go, well, this is what she, who should, this is what she'd be called and all that kind of stuff so i was helping them on that front and i was actually enjoying it and i was like all right i'm actually enjoying this um they must have looked at each other and gone and so they went back to my agent <laughs> and uh and called my agent and said okay uh, forget this consultant thing uh we want her to stay and help us write a pilot so we're going to bump her up from consultant to producer writer and show creator because she's going to help us create we cannot create this show without her because we don't know what we're doing with the, the side of the family so we need her and so overnight so I went from, you know, being in LA for a day. We ended up staying in a room for three weeks. I made uh, two pairs of underwear. <laughs> Last for three weeks. Last for three weeks. While but, it, I, uh, but it was worth it? Uh, absolutely worth it. Well, I stayed in a room and it was just me, Chuck, Al and Eddie in a room every day writing this pilot. And we wrote the pilot. And then Chuck was like, okay, well, we've written the pilot. I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to go back to New York. It's been wonderful working with you guys. Uh, I hope to see you again. I hope this, you know, something happens with this pilot. But thanks for the money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, And I went back to New York and, and waited. And this was like, I'm going to say it was August 
20, I'm going to say August 2018, I think. Yeah, August 2018. I went back to New York and carried on with my life. And then maybe a couple of months later, I got a call from Chuck and he's like, "Um, well, I'm driving through New York and my phone rings and it's uh, Nico, who's Chuck's assistant. And Nico's like, Nico Mason, Nico's like, "Um, I've got Chuck for you on the phone. And I was like, pull over immediately. (laughs) And Chuck's like, yeah, um, okay, seems like CBS. CBS liked the pilot. I gave it to CBS. They liked the pilot. And um, they liked what we wrote. And we're going to actually make a pilot. We're going to make a pilot. We're going to make a pilot. And I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And then he goes, I don't know if you're a communist. <laughs> Chuck goes to me, I don't know if you're a communist. And I was like, no, I'm not a communist, Chuck. What, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I'm just saying that because if we make a good show, you're, you're going to be very wealthy. <laughs> and I was like, well, Chuck, I would love to be very wealthy. Thank you very much. I'm definitely not a communist on that front. And and that's how it went. We I came back, we shot the pilot. The pilot went very well. Obviously, I'd written myself into the show at that point. Because when we were writing the pilot, obviously they were a little bit worried that I'd want the role of Abishola. And, and I'm like, look, I, I know what I'm I look like. I'm not a love interest. This is not a love interest face. And furthermore, as a stand-up comic, my dream has not been to have my own sitcom my dream has always been to be the funny friend or the crazy next door neighbor in someone else's sitcom because they always get the best lines the leads of the sitcoms are usually the straight guys i want the funny crazy friend so i've always wanted that so when we were writing the pilot uh when we were in the room i, I kept saying to, uh, to chuck and the guys um you know abby Shola needs a friend she needs a confidant don't you think she needs a friend i think she needs a friend and i've <laughs> written this character and at the point at that point in the pilot she wasn't even one of the main cast she was just like a, a guest starring role she didn't even have a name she was just woman on the bus she was this woman on the bus, the woman that rides the bus with Kemi, with Abishola to work. And so one day when, you know, once it was all written and it was going to go to CBS, Chuck came in and was like, okay, look, I'm going to be giving this pilot to CBS. Um, obviously you want the role of Abishola. If you want the role of Abishola, you're going to have to audition. And I said to Chuck, no, Chuck, I don't want Abishola. And he's like, what? And I was like, I want woman on the bus. <laughs> and Chuck looked at me and he went, you're very fucking smart. <laughs> so when we shot the pilot, I played woman on the bus because I knew what I was bringing to this character. You know, these are characters that I've been doing in my stand-up for 25 years. So I knew what I was bringing, even though they saw it as just a little guest starring role, I knew that once they saw the character, they would fall in love with the character and that character would end up being in every episode. And that is exactly what happened. They saw the character, they fell in love with the character. And, you know, I'm in the writer's room. So I'm watching every week and Chuck's going, Where, where's Kemi? She's not in this episode. We need to get in. So every week I was in, so I'd call my, I'd call my agent up. I was, I was like, okay, um, Kemi's in every episode. Go and negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> go get me at least a series regular or something exactly uh, and that's basic and that was basically how it all came about and now we yeah, it's a wild story yeah we've just completed we've got one more episode of season two and we've already been picked up for season three so i am a very happy lady thank you for the ride it's the best part of my day me too me three <laughs> so much better than the boss I thought that when you so kindly offered to drive me to work last week, it would become a regular thing. Not me. <laughs> you know, you should really think about getting some water and mints back here. It's not an Uber. It certainly isn't. So what's new with the zoo? The Detroit Zoo? <laughs> no, the hospital. Then why'd you ask about the zoo? Bob is playfully asking you about work, as if it is crazy like the zoo. <sighs> Thank you. It was very convoluted. Got it. How was your day? Yes. How is the job, Bob? You see? Simple, clear. 
Well, my job is fine. It's the other parts of my day that get stressful. Mm, stress can be a killer. I wish it was a silent killer. I mean, I'm sure there's so many great things about it, and and but you did say, you know, it kind of limits your ability to do other things and to do stand up. You know, sort of COVID is another factor. But do you do you feel like it is limiting you at all in in what you're what you're able to do? Are you happy that it's going to continue for? Presumably oh, no, a long time. I, I, it's opened up a whole new world for me. I've done stand up for 26 years. I loved stand up and I still love stand up. And I think I'll always be a stand up at heart. And even when at the weekends, after done, I've done a full week in the studio before COVID, I was still hitting the laugh factory in the comedy store and hitting the clubs in LA at the weekends just to keep my juices flowing. Um, but it's opened up a whole new world. It showed me that I can do stuff that I didn't know I could do. Like I'd always, I'd, I'd always turned down. Uh, working in a writer's room because I, I didn't want the politics and I didn't want a day job. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, you know, beholden to other people's egos or whatever. I, I always took pride in being employed, self-employed and making my own destiny. So I'd never worked in a writer's room. I didn't want to. And I never saw myself as actually creating a show and writing a show and produce, exe- I've never thought of myself as an exec producer. I was a stand-up and I just wanted to be a stand-up and then be a friend or something on someone else's sitcom, which would then sell more tickets for my stand-up. And that was all I ever wanted. So this this has kind of opened up a whole new world for me because I'm like, oh, I can, I'm writing a TV show. I, I, I've written a TV show. Um, I'm producing, I'm exec producing, I'm, I'm there on the set and I'm, 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 I've learned that I have skills, transferable skills that I didn't know I had. So it's opened up a whole new world for me and now I want to do more. I want more, I want to do more TV producing. I want to- Yeah, does it want to make you go off and, and make a show that is really all your own and 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 do it do it on your own? Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I like being in Chuck universe. Uh, I If I can carry on making shows under Chuck chuck's banner that would i'm not that ambitious <laughs> i'm really not that ambitious you don't have and to be i'm quite happy i would be quite happy if this show ran 10 seasons and it's the only thing i ever did i would be quite happy <laughs> so i'd love to make a show based off my book because i think i've had a very interesting life so i'd like to turn that into a limited series or a movie or something but yeah i am not that ambitious i i'm just enjoying the work <laughs> So uh, this show is called The Last Laugh, and we end the show by talking about the first laugh. And what I, I would like to hear from you is, do you remember the first piece of comedy or comedian or something that really made you laugh uh, when you were young? I do, but you guys won't know who he is. <laughs> That's okay. You can tell us about him. He was a hilarious, hilarious... He was a, a he was a radio host in England. His name was um, Kenny Everett. He was a radio show, ho- show host in England. And he was nuts, absolutely crazy. I mean, he's part of the reason why Queen the band became so huge because he was friends with Freddie Mercury and um, like, I mean, they fell out later on in life, but he was friends with Freddie Mercury and and even though. Um, people didn't really understand Queen's music. He kept playing their stuff, even though the radio station was like, this is rubbish. We don't want to hear it. He kept playing it and he locked the door so the executives couldn't come in, you know, but he, he ended up getting his own sketch show on television and he created some of the funniest characters and he got away with stuff back then. Like he had a character which was based on an American woman and her name was Cupid Stunt. Now, if you swap out the first couple of letters of the name, I didn't realize what he was doing till about 20 years later. You take the Cupid, <laughs> the C from Cupid and put it on stunt. I think and I'm getting the there, S- yeah. <laughs> ST from stunt and put it on in, instead of Cupid. You see where I'm going. 
And this character was on primetime television <laughs> in England in the 80s. But yes, yeah, so he came up with these crazy, hilarious characters and they were just so funny. I mean, some of them were stupid. There was one where he played Spider-Man and it's like Spider-Man and he swings him through a window and he's trying to go to the bathroom <laughs> and he realises that he's got no zips in his suit and he pisses himself. <laughs> it was things like that he was doing on primetime television. Kenny Everett. Hilarious. You got A lot of his sketches were on... Uh, are on YouTube, so you can find some of his funny stuff. There was one. I mean, he used to, he, he used to lampoon the Bee Gees. Um, he'd lampoon. There was. I remember Rod Stewart. He, he he did a lampoon of Rod Stewart where he's singing one of Rod Stewart's songs. But as he's singing, he's because uh, Rod Stewart back in the day used to wear these really tight leopard skin pants, and so he's lampooning Rod Stewart wearing these leopard skin. And as he's singing, his ass is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the end of it, he's floating in the air because his <laughs> ass is. I mean, it was. It sounds so stupid now yeah, but very silly but it's very silly but that made me laugh a lot as a kid and then do you remember the first joke that really worked for you on stage that really made people laugh when you when you told the joke on stage oh let me see one of my first ever jokes oh my god i gotta think back now oh yeah one of my first ever jokes I used to talk about the discipline, uh, the way my mum disciplined me and the difference between black discipline and white discipline. I remember, and it's a true story kind of, and how I, I used to talk about how I went to my white friend's house and her mum comes in and t- told her to go to bed and, and she turned to her mum and went, fucking shut <laughs> Fuck off out of my room. I'll go to bed when I want. And I was like, wow. And I went home and tried it with my mum. And my mum comes in. Do you know how time for you to go to bed now? And I was like, shut up. And uh, the punchline was, I was in a coma for six months. <laughs> that was one of the first, that was the first joke I think I ever wrote. And that joke used to kill so hard. I think I did that joke for the first 10 years of my career. <laughs> That's great. And then what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Something you've seen or, or a piece of comedy or um, something that happened uh, that, that really made you laugh? There is a comedian on Instagram. He's a really funny stand-up comic. And uh, he's, he does stuff on King. His name is Tony Baker. And he does these videos where he does voiceovers. He gets these animal videos from all over the world and does voiceovers for the animals. And they are absolutely hilarious. Every one of his videos is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, he's built up a huge following. He's got like nearly 2 million followers or something from, from, from that. And uh, any, if you just go on his Instagram page, any of his animal videos, hilarious. All right. Well, everyone should check that out. And yeah, and check out your book, uh, which I, I believe uh, as we're speaking, when this episode is out, the book will be out. So, uh, so go get the book. Go buy it. It's a good book. Backhanded. Yes. If you're left-handed, it will especially resonate with you for the most uh, definitely <laughs> for all of us lefties <laughs> out there. Well, Gita, thank you so much for for doing this, and um, and yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Gina Yashare for being my guest on today's show. That was a lot of fun. Her new memoir, Cack Handed, is available wherever you get your books, and we'll put a link to order it in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. 
You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs>